But the idea is there's two futures of the world. One is where remote work is soulless, isolated, and inhuman, and we just become little automatons and cogs in the wheel. And then there's this other narrative people are pushing where we have to come back in the office, but then you have to commute for two hours a day. You can only work in jobs in your city. You don't get an opportunity to travel the world. And so we're saying that there's a third way. I've been worth millions of dollars multiple times and then worth zero multiple times. So I basically spent most of my money that I had and I, well, made my next big mistake, which was because you want to prove that you are a good entrepreneur. And uh, that's a terrible reason to start a startup. And uh, that's what I did. You roll with the punches and, and entrepreneurship, everything's just 10x amplified. So, you know, the highs are higher and the lows are lower. But it's been okay with me because I, I well, I'll save that lesson for later. Brett Martin here, newly minted 40-year-old. And current location is Santa Teresa, Costa Rica. Although I would say my home address, according to the state of New York, is Brooklyn, New York, Williamsburg. My business is I'm the co-founder and president of Kumo Space, which is a uh, builds virtual offices for remote, distributed, and hybrid teams where they show up and work every day. And I also am the co-founder and GP of Charge Ventures, which is a premium pre-seed venture capital based out of New York. Okay. Well, could you tell us a little bit about Kumo Space first? Yeah, happy to. So Kumo Space is solving the problem of uh, why everyone's being dragged back to the office. Andy Jassy, CEO of Amazon, wrote a long letter about why he's bringing everyone back into the office starting May 1st for three days a week. And he talked about basically communication, the ability to collaborate, tap people on the shoulder, get quick answers. He talked about the sense of connection and camaraderie and the relationships we build at work and how you have to build trust by spending time with people. And then, you know, he danced around this sort of accountability that comes from showing up to work every day to see your team, be seen by your team, lead by example. And I, ironically, even though we build virtual offices, remote offices, I agree with him on all of those points. The only difference is that we think that we can provide those benefits of culture, collaboration, and accountability via a virtual office, a piece of software, and we can do it at a 20th of the cost of physical real estate. And so essentially, you know, what Kumo Space is, it's a piece of software that you can run on your browser, you can run on your desktop, you can run on your mobile phone. And it's kind of like a two-dimensional little office, looks like a diagram, a blueprint, except it's flushed in and you have a little furniture and plants and whiteboards and video screens and t- conference rooms. And you can sign in kind of like you do with Slack every day in the morning, except the difference is that rather instead of little green dots or orange dots, people are their videos. Their avatar is their video. And you can see we have an office that we work out of, a virtual office in Kumo Space. And every morning around 10 a.m., we're engineers mostly. So we got kind of a late start and late nights. But I start to see my 27, 28, 30 employees start trickling in and they'll go to their office or they'll go to common areas, pods, and just start working together. You know, they might catch up on their days and share some jokes and then start screen sharing, you know, whatever work they're doing is. They might open up a virtual whiteboard and start collaborating on it, or they might just put their headphones on. We have a whole concept of status and you can say, hey, I'm focusing and I'm just grinding on some work or doing a sales call right now, maybe outside of Kumo space. And so really, we're just trying to provide a place where people who are working remotely can show up to work together every day. And so the idea is if I am working from home, like people were, especially during the pandemic, obviously, that you just kind of have your webcam video on the whole time you're working just for a feeling of like, okay, I can see someone comes into my room, like you said, kind of two dimensional and they can see that I'm working. And now I don't feel as alone, even though I'm still alone at home physically, but maybe I see my coworker there and they're working and that kind of gives me some accountability. Is that kind of the idea? It's funny. We have these organizations that are either 10 people, 100 people, 10,000 people, and everyone's working all day from home, from Costa Rica, from the coffee shop. But yet there's no sense of togetherness, right? You might have 
people on 100 separate Zoom calls, having 100 separate meetings and chatting about sales and marketing and customer success and doing client calls. And literally no one is aware that anyone else is doing anything. Sure, you have a calendar and you might be able to see your team's calendar and see what they're up to, but you're not going to just barge in into a Zoom meeting of two people, you know, five other people that you weren't invited to, right? They're going to look and say, oh, why is Brett in the waiting room? That's so weird. He's not supposed to be here, right? It's awkward. I wouldn't want to do it and they would be confused why, right? Whereas if you think about in a physical office, right, we see and feel and feel connected physically to the people that we're working with. You can see conversations. You can see that the engineering team is having a meeting and I can stop by and rap on the glass door and say, hey, gentlemen, just wanted to check in. When's that new version of the mobile app going to be out? And they can say, Brett, yeah, it's delayed a day, but we're going to get it to you by Friday. Okay, great, right? That sort of quick little informal ad hoc interaction is not possible with our current remote work tools, Zoom, Slack, Teams, whereas it it was possible in a physical office. And now it is possible virtually in your Kumo Space virtual office. And so when did you start Kumo Space? It's a classic pandemic baby. I was running my pre-seed, seed stage venture capital fund, Charge Ventures, and doing a bunch of deals during the pandemic, remote. When the pandemic hit, I used to throw a monthly networking event for mid-career professionals. They would come and share deals, share angel investors. The pandemic hit and everyone said, oh, why don't you bring this online? And I said, I don't really want to give a PowerPoint presentation to 50 of my friends every month. That doesn't sound fun for me. It doesn't sound fun for them. And I kind of realized that, wow, there was no technology, even in 2020, available to have synchronous, multiple group interactions, many-to-many interactions online. And what is a synchronous many-to-many interaction? Well, that describes lots of interactions we have in the physical world. It describes events. It describes networking events. It describes classrooms with breakouts and workshops. It describes parties, social events, birthday parties. And it also describes offices, right, where you have lots of different people all in small groups collaborating together and people moving fluidly from group to group, right? As an executive, I might sit in a marketing meeting, then I might go check out a product meeting, and then I might go talk to the engineers fluidly without scheduling anything. So we sort of realized that that was not possible. There was no technology. You have products like Zoom and Teams where you have one audio channel. So you can have one person talking and then you might have 50 people listening, but as opposed to in an office where you might have 10 groups of five all interacting separately at the same time. And so I reached out to my co-founder and our CEO, Yang, and I said, Yang, look at this problem. And, and less than two weeks later, he showed me a prototype of what Kumo Space looks like. And it was totally bare bones, but we instantly saw that there was something there. Yeah, that was it. We, that was May 2020. We had launched it by August 2020, and it just started growing organically as people shared it as a way of coming together online. And when you said Yang, your co-founder, was that from like the venture fund that you're also a part of or explain that a little bit? Yeah. So I was just purely doing venture stuff at the time. Yang and I actually have known each other for over a decade. He's been my partner for all of my companies. We built our first company called Sonar back around 2010 together. He he built our Android app. Then we built a company called Switch. He was our technical co-founder for that. And then in this one, he's a CEO. So whenever I have a technical idea that I'm looking for a smart opinion on, you know, Yang went to Princeton and worked at Google. He's my go-to guy. Well, that makes sense. And then I guess as far as Kuma Space over the last couple of years, what have you grown to as far as, I don't know, clients and revenue and all of that good stuff? Now, I mean, we have millions of users. We have tens of thousands of teams in there that are using it. And, you know, if you use it for an office, a virtual office, folks are using it for six plus hours a day. So people are actually spending tens of millions of hours a month in Kumo space working. And it's been, I guess, what, two and a half years, but it's really, it's flown by. (laughs) And most of the clients that you have who end up using it, could you just give us a rundown so maybe people could check it out? And if they wanted to, it's kumospace.com if they wanted to check it out while you're talking now. For sure. It's at K-U-M-O-S-P-A-C-E.com, Kumospace. Google, that was actually our first customer, Columbia Business School, Shopify, all, all the big fangs. You know, we have people at Facebook, Amazon using it, but we also have a lot of fast-growing software companies using it, a bunch of folks from my portfolio, Inara Health, and 
geology are using Kumo Space. Another Slate Teams is using Kumo Space. So fast-growing startups to big fangs. We have NASA using it for their recruiting in there. So you know, anywhere from small startups to gigantic governmental organizations, the government of Canada, we're lucky enough to count as a client, are all using it. And it's because we all have to share this same problem of feeling together and connected while working apart. And I'm looking even at the pricing. It's not bad at all. And especially it says if you have 10 members that it's basically up to 10 members is free. So if someone had an eight or nine person company, they could just even try it out for free and see how their company likes it before, I guess they go up to the next level or whatever. Yeah, hundred percent. It's free for you know less than 10 folks. And for teams larger than that, it's $10 per person per month. If you're paying for a monthly or you get a discount if you buy an annual account. And yeah, we think that's a pretty good deal relative to paying thousands of dollars per person for office space. And for getting all those benefits, right, of really having a strong culture, being able to have a culture where people can share and learn from each other, the ability to collaborate, tap people on the shoulder, get quick answers to your questions, iterate quickly. And also, you know, just accountability, right? It's just a place to show up to work every day, get your best work done, show up for your team. And whether you're on the team or you're leading the team, it's like, it really, we're humans, we're pack animals. We like to be part of a herd. And so Kumo Space lets you do that. I'm here with Megan Bennett. How's it going, Megan? It is going great. How's my favorite podcast host and the most handsome young man? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for stating the obvious, Megan. But we're here to talk about you and your company, Light Years Ahead. I interviewed Megan on episode 177 of this very podcast. And she helped all of our Patreon members on Group Call 3. So you can hear more about Megan and how she helped our Patreon members there as well. So would you mind telling us what you do and how you could help our listeners, Megan? Yes. So my agency is Light Years Ahead and we're boutique, but we're a national PR firm. We're women-owned, and we focus on emerging brands, experts, and services in the consumer lifestyle space. We're based throughout the U.S. We're in New York, Kansas City, L.A., and Dallas. And we really specialize in maximizing media exposure for brands and experts, which can then create more sales and brand awareness and influence buying decisions. Our clients range everything from small startups looking to make a name for themselves to large brands that are trying to become relevant again. My agency, Light Years Ahead, we target the very top editors, writers, and producers across all different media outlets. And we've been doing this for over 20 years, which has earned us a very strong reputation with the top media, with outlets like BuzzFeed, Today Show, Good Morning America, Refinery29, Pop Sugar, Forbes, and many more. We can help you grow your brand into a household name. Well, that sounds awesome. So if someone might be interested in your service, what's the best way for them to reach you? Oh, the best way to reach out is to email me at Megan, M-E-G-A-N, at lightyearsahead.com. That's Megan at lightyearsahead.com. Or you can check out our services and capabilities at lightyearsahead.com, our website. And I know you've helped a few of our past guests as well with their PR, and they do sing your praises. So hopefully you can help some of our listeners as well. Absolutely. And we love working with your listeners and entrepreneurs who are really passionate about what they're doing. And this is what we want to offer your listeners. The first five listeners that schedule a call with us to develop a PR campaign will receive $500 off their first month of services with us. It's a great deal. Awesome. And one more time, what's the best place for them to reach you to take you up on that offer? You can reach me at Megan at lightyearsahead.com or check out our website at lightyearsahead.com or you can go to our Instagram page at L-Y-A-P-R. For most of us, learning a second language in high school or college wasn't exactly a high point in our academic careers. Like back when I had to take Spanish in high school and only remember hola. But now, thanks to Babbel, the language learning app that's sold more than 10 million subscriptions, there's an addictively fun and easy way to learn a new language. Whether you'll be traveling abroad, connecting in a deeper way with your family, or you just have some free time, Babbel teaches bite-sized language lessons that you'll actually use in the real world. And guess what? I chose to brush up on my Spanish, so not only could I learn hello, but I could also learn adios. 
See, with Babbel's 15-minute lessons, they make it the perfect way to learn a new language on the go. Babbel's expertly crafted lessons are built around real life. You learn how to have practical conversations about travel, relationships, business, and more. Other language learning apps use AI for their lesson plans, but Babbel lessons were created by over 100 language experts. Their teaching method has been scientifically proven to be effective. With Babbel, you can choose from 14 different languages, including Spanish, French, Italian, and German. Plus, Babbel's speech recognition technology helps you to improve your pronunciation and accents. There are so many ways to learn with Babbel. In addition to lessons, you can access podcasts, games, videos, stories, and even live classes. Plus, it comes with a 20-day money-back guarantee. Start your new language learning journey today with Babbel. Right now, get up to 55% off your subscription when you go to babbel.com slash millionaire. That's babbel.com slash millionaire for up to 55% off your subscription. Babbel, language for life. Yeah, I mean, it makes total sense because entrepreneurs or small teams, a lot of them are working from home still. And you really wonder if like, okay, if I'm working right now, does anyone even know? Does anyone care? Am I making a difference? And the capability of, okay, I can see that someone else is working in my company. It pushes me to work versus you just feeling alone and isolated, like you're saying, especially I guess the bigger companies might help even more, but even smaller ones where you're losing out on that ability to connect with people and just being able to chat with them real quick. So I definitely would say it's worth checking out, especially if it's free, up to 10 members, anyone who's listening now. Well, thank you, sir. And if you want to get Kuma Space set up for your team, happy to you know, deck it out for millionaire interviews and make it personal. Like that's one of the things we really push is this, is, you know, your office, your virtual office is completely customizable. You can trick it out as much as you want. Everyone can have their own little office with their own little vibe. In my office, I've got sand and waves and a beach umbrella and a beach chair and the sounds of the ocean. And that's reflective of my personality. I'm actually calling in here from Costa Rica. I love, you know, a big surfer, but other people have totally different rooms. One of our engineers has his room set up like a DJ booth with a velvet rope and he's kind of more, you know, larger than life. Uh, his name's Bruno. I love him. Bruno Mars? Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, this guy, he's a good looking guy. He could, I think he could have an entertainment career after his engineering. But the idea is there's two futures of the world. One is where remote work is soulless, soul crushing, isolated, and inhuman. And we just become little automatons and cogs in the wheel. And then there's this other narrative people are pushing where we have to come back in the office, but then you have to commute for two hours a day. You can only work in jobs in your city. You don't get to tuck your kids in at night and you don't get an opportunity to travel the world, right? And so we're saying that there's a third way, right? There's a third way. There's a place where we can feel part of a team. We can do good work. We can be really connected and and have real strong bonds and relationships with our team and get great work done at high level of performance. And we can live the life that we want. We can live in Costa Rica if we want. We can spend more time with our kids and and tuck them in and you know read them read them bedtime stories. Or we can slip out to take our older grandmother to you know the doctor's appointment and still be productive. And so that's our narrative that we're pushing. We, you know we think there's a third way where you can live your best life and kick butt at work. So that's what we're trying to pitch. Can you tell us a little bit about how you kind of spend your time between Kumo Space and then your venture capital firm, Charge Ventures, that you're talking about that I guess this kind of spun out of? Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. Everyone says, oh, you know, how do you split your time? What percentage? And, you know, the truth is I just have two jobs. So <laughs> luckily, I'm not the first person to have to work two jobs. There's a lot of people out there who are less fortunate than me that, you know, have to. I, I do it because I love it. With Charge, I have such a amazing opportunity, right? I, you know, I get to sit on a pile of money. I get to talk to really interesting, hardworking, smart, talented people all day, ask them about their insights about the world and their vision for the future. I get to pick a few that I really like, and then we get to partner. I get to give them money, and then we get try, try to get rich together. What an amazing job that is and what a privilege it is to be a venture capitalist and to get the chance to work with such hardworking and you know industrious and special people. You know, we've got 60 plus portfolio 
companies now or, you know, in our third fund and just feel really fortunate that we get to really invest in people at the earliest stages. We invest in people when they're just getting off the ground, raising their first couple million dollars and, you know, help to put people in business. And it's just really a privilege. And then Kumo Space was, honestly, I was very happy doing charge, focusing on investing. Uh, you know, I had built several companies earlier in my 20s and thir- early 30s. And I wasn't looking to start another company. But when I came up with the idea for Kumo Space, you know, I always tell people, I'm like, don't be an entrepreneur unless there's literally nothing else you can do, right? Don't be an entrepreneur unless there's like, you have no other choice. It's always easier to make money working for someone else. And it'll never make sense to be an entrepreneur. The only reason to do it is if you literally can't do anything else. And when I see what looks like great investments, things with lots of revenue, growing really quickly, high margins, great moat, smart management team with deep insight into a space, I would usually just give them money <laughs> because that is far easier to write someone a check and own 10% of their business than it is to grind in day in, day out. But when I saw the Kumo space, when we thought about Kumo space, it spoke to me so personally. My whole career, if you look at all the companies I've started, it's basically building new ways of interacting, new forms and modalities of interacting, of communication online that are more authentic and natural, right? And you know, look at my first company, Sonar. It was leveraging information on the internet, get offline and connect in person. If you look at Switch, it was about basically making it easier to get in touch with the hiring manager of a company and have a more authentic interaction with you know your future employer. And you look at Kumo Space, it's just like, hey, like we're spending all day working from home, working from anywhere remotely, and it like it's pretty dehumanizing. How can we bring the humanity back to remote work? The more I thought about it and the more I spent time with Yang on it, I just couldn't help be a part of it. So yeah, I guess I'm uh, following my own advice there. Yeah, thank you for the insight. So if you don't mind, why don't we go ahead and jump back to where you were born and raised and fast forward to where you went to college and all that other good stuff in your entrepreneurial story. Yeah, for sure. I'm from Ocean City, Maryland. It's a uh, small mid-Atlantic beach resort, cotton candy, funnel cakes, roller coaster rides, haunted houses. Grew up surfing, went to a really small school, and I was lucky enough. I kind of won the educational lottery. I got into Dartmouth up in New Hampshire. That changed my life, obviously. I couldn't like really fathom all the worlds. A lot of these kids were from, you know, big city parents doing investment banking and working for the government. And and then when I graduated, I, you know, I always knew I was going to be an entrepreneur. I mean, even actually when I was a young kid, I was always entrepreneurial. I had started, you know, little small businesses. I, you know, we used to buy conch shells from the fishermen, clean them up and then sell them for a thousand percent markup. And so I always knew I was going to start a company. And I did my two years of service that I have an investment bank, met some great people, but kind of realized that financial engineering was not going to be my future. I, you know, I really wanted to build things. And so then ever since then, I've been building and investing in, in technology. I've got to start companies. I worked at several venture funds. Right before starting Charge, I was at Primary Venture Partners with Ben Sun and Brad Zverlija, you know, great guys. And I really got to see the rise of the New York tech ecosystem from primordial ooze to what it is today, second largest venture capital market in the world outside of China. That's what I love. I just love the intersection of new tech and people being more human. And so when did you actually graduate college? Yeah, I graduated in 2004. Back in 2004, when you were smart and hardworking and you wanted financial independence, you know, you would probably go and try to get a job at a bank or a consulting firm or maybe a law firm or something like that. And I did that. I didn't really know what that big idea was at the time. And what's been interesting is that a couple of years later, we had the financial crisis and that option, that track was no longer available, right? None of the consulting firms were hiring, none of the banks were hiring. And so when there is no track, the track becomes entrepreneurship. And so we saw all this talent come from these good schools that normally would have been sucked up and put in a cubicle somewhere. They had to sort of come up with their own ideas and start to fend for themselves. And that really was like the big inflection point for tech. And in places like New York, where we always had the capital, we always had the talent, but what we didn't really have was the culture of entrepreneurship. And it's just sort of building and growing around 2008, 2009. A bunch of my friends at the time were very small venture funds, ENIAC Ventures, Vixing and Nahal and Hadley and Tim and Jordan Cooper at Lair Ventures and the folks at 
primary, like I mentioned, you know, they all just started new funds and it's pretty crazy. It was great timing. It sounded crazy to write $100,000 checks into illiquid, unprofitable companies. But the people that were brave enough to do it then are now all sitting on several hundred million, billion dollar funds, sitting pretty pretty. So I think a great example of fortune favors the bold. When those people started doing that, you said around 2010, but you coming out of college, you said you worked for an investment company and you did that for, or I don't know if you kind of jumped around, but how long did you do all that stuff before, I guess, maybe starting your own company or joining one of these venture funds with your friends? Yeah. So I did banking for first two years. I, you know, I did equity research. I was a research analyst. I, I covered healthcare services. Real quick, do you mind telling me what that is, just so everyone's on the same page, kind of understanding that? Oh, for sure. So equity research is a function at an investment bank. And it means researching equities or stocks. And so what you do is you have what's called a coverage universe. It's basically anywhere from like 15 to 30 stocks that you become the absolute world expert on. And so I covered healthcare services, which means hospitals, surgery centers, dialysis clinics, hospice, things like that. And I would cover all the publicly traded companies in those spaces. And we would basically research those stocks, talk to management, do channel checks, diligence, and then write research reports basically saying, do we think this is a stock is a good buy or not? And the customers for that research are institutional investors, institutional money managers, people that run hedge funds, that run mutual and make investments for mutual funds. So kind of like the way your financial advisor, your stockbroker might give the retail investor an individual like some stock tips and say, hey, you know, think about buying the stock NVIDIA GPUs and graphics processes are going to be in demand for the next 10 years. We provided similar recommendations, but we did that for institutional money managers. So people that were going to buy 10, 50, 100 million dollars worth of a stock, they would call us and ask us for our advice on which stocks to buy. Okay. And you said you did that for two years? Yeah, I did that for a couple of years right out of college. And, you know, it was a really great learning experience. I, you know, I think a lot of people in tech, they sometimes look down on finance and talk smack about finance. And one of the things I like about finance is that everyone is very clear why they're there. And that's money. It's pretty clear, cut and dry, what good and bad is and what works and what's not. And it's no nonsense in that sense. And it is excellent training, building work ethic, like working 80 to 100 hours a week for a couple of years. Everything after that seems pretty breezy. Yeah, I did that for a couple of years. And then I actually took probably a slightly different turn than, than most people. What was that? Well, I was going to take over my boss's job. He was leaving and you know I could take his job and kind of run the franchises, it's called, and be the lead analyst on those stocks. But I instead, I actually lived on a sailboat for a year. So uh, me and a buddy of mine from college, his family had a 40-year-old 30-foot sailboat. And we uh, took that and we sailed it 6,000 miles from Maine down to an island called Dominica in the Caribbean. I'm about halfway to South America. And and then uh, back. So uh, that's what I did the year after banking. And did you do that because it was like the financial crisis? No, I actually left before. Uh, that was uh, 2006, 2007 for me. So I probably would have maximized earnings by sticking around for one more year. I think 2007 probably would have been a pretty banner year for bonuses. But 2008 would have been terrible. <laughs> so uh, I didn't quite top tick the market, but I did get out beforehand. And, you know, I, I was just, I think a lot of people get stuck with the golden handcuffs. They get on a treadmill, they start making more money, they start spending more money, and then all of a sudden they can't leave. And my plan had always been to graduate college, make a bunch of money, make sure I paid off any debts I had, and then really have just like complete financial independence so that I could do whatever I wanted. What I wanted to do was travel. So the sailboat, which was essentially free shelter and transportation, enabled me to see, you know, 20 countries down in the Caribbean. And, you know, I don't think I spent more than $10,000 that year. So what, it was a full year of sailing? Uh, about nine months. How did y'all come up with this? Did your buddy approach you with it? And you're like, yeah, let's do this. I'm tired of being an analyst working 80, 90 hours a week. Well, actually, my buddy was an English major from college, and he was down with a bunch of my friends cleaning up after Hurricane Katrina. They were down in Biloxi, Mississippi, right by you know New Orleans, which everyone knows got destroyed. And they were just helping rebuild the city of Biloxi. They were tearing down houses that had been you know destroyed by water damage and mold and, and starting to rebuild them and really get that area back on its feet. 
yeah, my friends have always been a little bit wanderers, and I guess you know not really necessarily the type A, uh, you know, straight line type people. And so he had been down in Biloxi uh, fixing houses, and you know he heard that I had come up as a as a free agent. I basically had reached out to all my friends. I said, okay, great, you know, we made money. Let's travel. And my friends had said, well, Brett, it's 2006. We're all making, you know, $200,000, $250,000 a year at 23. Cordially, go to hell. So I found my one buddy who, uh, you know, was an English major and wasn't working at a bank. And he was looking for something to do as well. And so we just luckily, you know, they had an old sailboat. And that's how that plan came together. Were you scared at all? Had you had any experience sailing before? So funny you should say that. I actually was quite afraid of boats because I grew up surfing, but I would never really been away from shore. And so the concept of not seeing shore was quite scary. And so I actually think that was part of the reason I did it. It was interesting. A funny story is that we started the sale. We sailed from Maine. We got to New England, Connecticut, which is just north of Long Island. And we were supposed to take a 36-hour sail from New England, Connecticut down to Cape May, New Jersey. So around Long Island, past New York, and down to the southern tip of New Jersey. Four days later, so close to 100 hours, we arrived in Norfolk, Virginia, and we got caught in a gigantic winter storm and blown 300 miles out to sea by 15-foot waves and 70-knot winds. And I honestly was so green that I didn't even know how dangerous that position was. (laughs) And how'd you get out of that position? Well, we were fortunate at the time. It was me, my buddy, and his father. And so his dad had been a helicopter pilot in Vietnam and then had uh, flown choppers for the Coast Guard. And his name's Papa Sean. He's just an amazing guy. He's got a big handlebar mustache, a mainer. And I learned a very important lesson from him, which was we were getting destroyed. We were getting destroyed. I mean, we had 15-foot waves just breaking over the bow of the boat. And we were jacked in. We were hooked into a line that held us to the boat. So we get washed off. And I was so exhausted, soaking wet. It was October outside, you know, freezing cold, wearing layers and layers of clothes, just sopping wet and couldn't even think straight. And this guy was just whistling Dixie, smiling, good morning. So, you know, figuring out how to somehow like cook us food. He made coffee in the middle of the storm. I don't know how he did it. And just kept such a smile on his face, even in the face of just like absolute danger and mayhem. And I observed him. And one thing I noticed about him was he was constantly fixing things. He constantly was repairing, mending the sails, fixing the binnacle light, repairing the rudder, patching up a crack in the, in the side of the ship. And I learned an important lesson from that guy, which was like, one, keep your wits about you, keep light in the face of serious circumstances. And then two, that guy literally would have, God would have to come down and pluck him off the face of the earth himself before that guy was going to go. And so no matter what, he was going to be doing whatever it took to maximize the chances of success and survival. And he never took a break from doing that. And so that was a very important lesson for me about how to respond to adversity. Well, after the storm, did it settle enough that y'all were able to kind of sail to shore or did y'all actually need to call for help? Well, mercifully, we got blown in the appropriate direction. So we actually, you know, made a bunch, covered a bunch of ground and made it all the way to Virginia instead of Jersey. Uh, So it just helped you get there faster. You got lucked out with that? That is correct. Okay. And then how about the rest of the trip? Did it just go okay? Because I'm just curious, like how close do you even sail to shore? And I mean, just even looking at a map or anyone can imagine just going from New York all the way down to almost South America. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a crazy story. I mean, we saw pirates and drug runners and water spouts, which is a tornado in the ocean and, you know, attacked by swarms of mosquitoes and held at gunpoint twice, only once by the police. I mean, it was crazy early 20s sort of adventures that you'd be terrified if you heard about your your own children having them. Yeah. Well, you have to tell us about the gunpoint stories now before we move on. Well, we got boarded once by, we didn't know it was a police at the time, but they came on and I woke up and I had a, looks like a machine gun, like maybe four inches from my face. 
And this guy on the ship, like, asked guess where we were because we were a small vessel and we did a night sail from Antigua to Martinique. And we came in and we actually, you know, we thought there was a through Martinique, it looks like an elephant ear. And, you know, there was a kind of a river we thought that could just cut straight through it. So we didn't have to go around the island. It turns out it's a very narrow passage. And we came in at night because we took a beautiful night sail. And then, you know, the police were just wondering, what are you guys doing? You know, everyone thought we were running drugs. I mean, that was obviously not the case. We were just <laughs> cruising around. But when they see kind of small unmarked vessel going their water space, like that's the natural assumption. So we were good. We cleaned it up. They were okay with us and let us go through. But it was a, quite an interesting way to start the day. So that was the one time with the police. You said you were held at gunpoint twice, right? Yeah, well, you know, I, some stories are better left to imagine. <laughs> uh, okay. I guess y'all had an internal fight? No, 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 not at all, not at all. Just there's some rough parts. I mean, truthfully, what that was, was we were coming up the coast of Puerto Rico and on the radar, we saw another ship coming in really hot into us and it was late, it was 2 a.m. And we were like, what is going on here? And we basically got out the gun and got on the radio and on the public channel and basically said, boat at XYZ coordinates, identify yourself. And luckily enough, the boat actually just peeled out. And so we don't really know what that was about, but we, we felt like it was probably someone that was a, was a drug runner, thought we were there to pick up and was like coming to, you know, try to deliver stuff to us. And when we got on the police channel and told them to identify themselves, they, they uh, scooted out of there real quick. Did you tell your parents all these stories? Yeah, I'm pretty fortunate. I've got a uh, pretty, I'd say, clear line of communication to my f- my family. I, th- I think they prefer to hear about it after the fact, not before. But yeah, you know, I'm, my family's always treated me like adults, so I've never had a problem telling them what we're up to. I mean, makes sense. But I mean, that's pretty wild when you're, what, like 24, 25, you're doing like this one trip is enough scary moments for someone in their whole lifetime, it sounds like. Honestly, that's what I said. You know, the risk portion of a young man's brain, I think they've shown is not fully formed until their mid to late 20s. And so I I wasn't there yet. (laughs) Okay. Well, that makes sense. I never even knew that. So you do that for nine months, like you said, and then you decide you want to go back to New York and start working again? I can't say that. Actually, we were on Virgin Gorda and I was sitting there. I was actually talking with a guy who ran a hedge fund that I happened to be chatting with. And I got an email from my mom saying that I had gotten a thick package from the Fulbright Association, which is a government-funded research program that will send you to other countries to do government-funded research, but funded by both U.S. government and the foreign government. And I got accepted into the Fulbright program. I was sitting in Virgin Gorda. I think that was the you know fall of 2006. So I realized that you know when I got back, I was actually I got another year. <laughs> This is all post-investment banking. And so I got a research to uh, study the effect of globalization on the Italian textile and fashion industries. And so I was actually headed to Milan the following year to do this research at the University of Bocconi, which is the number one business school in, in Europe and in Milan. Yeah, so that was great. So I didn't have a, I kind of had that to look forward to on the sailing trip. And then I had six months to kill when we got back from the sailing trip. And I spent that working at a little thing called VBS.TV, which is actually Vice Magazine's internet presence. I'm not sure if you've heard of Vice, but they're a big media company now, you know, multi-billion dollar media company. But at the time, they had just been this Canadian counterculture little magazine started by essentially some drug addicts that were conning the Canadian government out of some money. And they created this magazine as a, as a platform to do it. And then they had uh, had a bunch of success, you know, really great editorial, actually. And they had just opened an office in Williamsburg, New York, a couple blocks from my house. And they are starting their online media company, which in 2006 was kind of a crazy idea. My buddy, Brian Norse worked there. He was kind of running production. And I had some time to kill between starting my Fulbright and getting off the boat. And so I um, was their second marketing guy, I guess, uh, you know, as an intern. It's a former banker interning at this media organization. It was crazy. We took them from 60,000 monthly page views to like 2 million. And we were buying a bunch of traffic off porn websites and bouncing it off the site to get the numbers cranking. And yeah, it was, it was a wild time. 
They did not trust me as a former investment banker, but I did build them their only model to predict their ad sales and manage their ad inventory. So I felt like that was a useful use of time. And I did that while getting to start a band with some of my friends from college, you know, all actually like very talented musicians. I was not a musician at all. I actually didn't know how to play any instrument. So the deal I struck with them is, you know, kind of organizing the band and, you know, getting us together. And in return, they would teach me how to play the bass. And so we started the band that summer and I took off to go to the Fulbright Scholarship, but then they actually continued on, played for five years. They played a bunch of Bowery Ballroom and famous venues in New York and South by Southwest. And so, you know, that was really fun. So that was my um, summer before the Fulbright. Now that spring is finally here, the days are longer, the flowers are blooming, and I can spend time outside in my yard. What makes the season even better is Sunday Lawn Care. Sunday is everything you need to get the lawn you dreamed of. This spring, go to GetSunday.com slash millionaire and enter your address to get a customized plan created just for your lawn. No trips to the store or hauling heavy bags since they ship it straight to your home. You just need to hose to apply Sunday. You can fertilize your whole lawn in less time than it takes you to watch an episode of your favorite TV show. And they only use ingredients you can feel good about. No harsh chemicals, no long waiting periods, or trying to keep your kids and pets off the lawn. Simply apply, let it dry, and you're back to enjoying your yard. Sunday is easy and affordable. Some lawn care services cost more than 1500 bucks a year. But Sunday's full season plans start at just $109. And guess what? Sunday is offering our listeners 20% off. Full season plans start at just $109 and you can get 20% off when you visit GetSunday.com slash millionaire at checkout. That's 20% off your custom plan at GetSunday.com slash millionaire. And then the Fulbright, you're over in Italy for about three years doing that. It's through the, it's called the Fulbright Scholarship Show. Are you getting paid a decent amount or what are you getting paid like and what's your job like there? I mean, it's a government scholarship. So I would not say it was exactly getting paid a ton. I mean, I think I had a stipend. I think it was like 13,000 euros or something like that. So for a year? Yeah, for a year. Dang, yeah, that's nothing. I, I was thinking maybe like 50K US, you know, that you'd at least get paid, but obviously that doesn't sound like that. No, not so much. Yeah, I think I was making uh, like a less than 20th of what I was making at the bank. <laughs> yeah. And that's the reason I wanted to point that out. It seemed like you made a lot of money those first couple of years, then you went sailing and then you're doing this. I didn't think you'd make much, but that's even less than I would have thought. I think a lot of people, they get attached to a number and their number and they're kind of checking their bank account all the time. That's, that's never really been my style. I'm, I'm more like, I'll do interesting things and do good work and the money will come. And part of being an entrepreneur is being able to take some risk and keeping a low burn <laughs> gives you a lot of flexibility. Right. And yeah, I appreciate you like saying that and talking about that. The only reason I bring it up is like you're almost taught in college or you maybe most people think you come out and it's just an upward path, right, of income. We are even hearing through your story how you made a lot of money the first couple of years and then afterwards you didn't and you might be happier doing these other things. So I just like bring it into account of some people wouldn't be able to cut back their spending. It sounds like maybe your friends who you asked them to go on that sailing trip and they're like, no, I'm making too much money. I don't want to versus you obviously have a different outlook on it and that I think most entrepreneurs need to understand and probably do that. Yeah, it's not a linear path up with income, but all around. Uh, I've been all over the place. I've been worth millions of dollars multiple times and then worth zero multiple times. So it's definitely for me been a, a spiky journey. I think entrepreneurship kind of looks like that. You know, I think if you work your way up the corporate ladder, obviously it's like much more stable and secure. But you know, even then you never know, right? Like, you know, you can have life changing thing, you can get hurt, you can lose a bunch of money in the stock market. I mean, I, I feel like you never actually have control of your situation. So you control what you can and you roll with the punches and, and entrepreneurship, everything's just 10x amplified. So, you know, the highs are higher and the lows are lower, but it's been okay with me because I, I well, I'll save that lesson for later. You learn not to tie your self-worth to your net worth. Yeah. Well said, well said. Don't tie your self-worth to your net worth. And then, so yeah, you're in Milan, like you said, for a couple of years, and then you come on back. Is there any experiences that stand out before we move forward from the Fulbright Scholar? Oh, it was great. You know, I, I spent a year in Milan and did my research with my old friend, and actually it's his birthday today, uh, Thanos Papadimitriou, 
who was my Fulbright advisor. We got to work and do some really great research on entrepreneurship. I used that actually as a pivot. So I got the Fulbright to you know, study the effect of globalization on the Italian textile and fashion industries. And then I did the research and I wrote the report and I realized I do not want to be part of this industry. It's dying. And I said, what do I want to be a part of? I want to be a part of tech. And so we kind of pivoted the research into a study of early stage entrepreneurship and resource allocation. And I used that opportunity in Italy to basically do Skype calls with 100 American VCs and CEOs of publicly traded companies. And I used that as my way of networking my way into tech. And then as you network into tech, what happens? Well, that was the next step of my career, basically. I, I came back and honestly, I had probably one of my, probably my toughest year professionally of my life. It was my lost year, really. I came back from the Fulbright. I was still getting the research published in Harvard Business Review and kind of going back and forth in Italy. And I was trying to find a job and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I was like, do I want to start a company? Do I want to be a venture capitalist? Do I want to go back to graduate school, get an MBA, get a PhD? And I kind of waffled back and forth there. And I had like 10 interviews at some venture capital firm in New York and could not get them to give me the answer, you know, one way or another. And I was like, what is going on? And I was still so young and naive that I did not realize the financial crisis was going on. <laughs> and of course, they weren't going to add new hires and they were going to try to cut costs. And so ultimately, that's actually what pushed me into entrepreneurship is because I was like, well, no one's hiring. So I'm going to start a company. And so I grabbed one of my smartest buddies from college, my buddy Will Heidecheck, and we moved to my mom's house and set up a war table in her uh, dining room, you know, God bless her. And just started iterating on ideas. And we moved to Austin eventually. That, you know, that startup really never launched, but it definitely gave me a taste. And then I came back to New York and joined a, a small, you know, just started VC fund. It's called App Fund. They were going to focus on software built for the tablet. And that's how I sort of got in. I got in. My buddy Jordan Cooper uh, helped connect me with that job. And that turned from it basically a VC to an incubator. And from that incubator, I said, okay, fine. If we're going to be an incubator, I'm going to start a company. And so I started my first company that was called Sonar. And what year was that? That was 2000. So 2010 is when I moved back to New York and got started there. And when you're saying New York, are you actually like New York City? Yeah, I was in New York. I think I was in West Village or something at that time. Yeah, because you're saying you kind of went to Austin and you were in New York City. I mean, I'm just curious because obviously rent's expensive in New York, but are you like going to the same place when you're coming back to New York or like living with the same friends? I'm just a little curious on your personal aspect of living. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I had lived in New York I and mean, we lived in Spanish Harlem and then we lived downtown. You know, first apartment was a three bedroom in Spanish Harlem. I think we paid $400 a person a month, which was pretty cheap by today's rent. As you can imagine. And then we moved down to West Village. And when I came back from this, I moved in with my buddy Tim, who's a neuroscientist, PhD student at the time at Columbia. And uh, yeah, we lived in a tiny little apartment in the West Village. And that's when, like you said, you started your first startup? Yeah, that was my first real startup, which is called Sonar, which is called a proximity based social networking app, a way of connecting with people to you nearby. And it was a crazy ride. We launched out of the incubator. We launched a TechCrunch Disrupt. We were the runners up there. You know, I like launched it on stage in front of 10,000 people. And we had kind of a crazy rise. We had 300 press mentions in like six months. And we were down in South by Southwest. And we're on Fox News and all these pieces. It's kind of a battle between us and these other proximity-based social networking apps. And interestingly, at the time, the iPhone, I don't think it did very efficient caching of your geolocation. So anytime an app would ask for your location, it would ping the cell tower. And so everyone was at South by Southwest, which is like a big tech conference running around. They had five of these like proximity-based networking apps like Sonar on their phones, each of them asking for the location every five minutes. And it just destroyed everyone's battery. And so the space went from the hottest space in tech, social, local, mobile, to freezing like the ninth circle of hell. And it didn't work out. It's, it's a longer story. You know, we almost sold a couple of times. It didn't, it didn't pan out. We almost recapped the company. It didn't pan out. Three years later, I had a bunch of money. I was $60,000 into personal credit card debt for the company. How much? I think I had $60,000 of credit card debt at the time. And, you know, I had just been burning money for a few years. So I didn't have that much gas in the tank at the time. 
Wow. And so this is kind of over like a three-year span, it looks like, when I'm looking on LinkedIn. Yep. And, you know, it was crazy. You know, we had millions of users all over the world. And ultimately, it did not pan out. My investors, I had some investors that were amazing and some investors that were didn't really do anything. And I had some investors that kind of like actively I disagreed with and made a lot of friction. I actually never owned more than 20% of that company. So I, I didn't really have control. And at the time, you know, when I was in my early 20s, I thought, I don't really care that much about money. And, but I just didn't realize like, oh, I actually do care somewhat about control. And so it was really hard because there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen and it didn't ultimately work. And because I had a cap table that was very kind of lopsided, some people put in a little money and owned a lot. And some people put in a lot of money and owned a little. And then there was me who just owned a little. It was like hard to really steer the thing. Ultimately, that's what killed it is just not being able to get everyone on the cap table aligned. That said, you know, a lot of people, they do come to me and they say, oh, you know, proximity-based social networking, what's going to happen in that space? Someone going to do something. And I, and I always tell them, I said, yeah, someone did do something big in proximity-based social networking. And that company is called Tinder <laughs> because it turns out that the proximity is actually not a very useful signal for people you want to connect with unless you really need to meet them in person. And so dating <laughs> proximity is a very good signal for it. People tend to only date people they are physically close to. And so uh, Tinder did a great job. Well, yeah, well, thank you for sharing all that. I was going to ask kind of what you learned, but I think you really summed it up pretty well. I don't, I don't know if there's anything else that you learned before we move on to kind of where you went from there. You can check it out. I wrote a postmortem. It's called Postmortem of a Venture Back Startup. And I published that about a month after it was over. And I jokingly say that it got more traction than Sonar ever did. I mean, that's not true because Sonar did have millions of users, but this thing got a few million reads and uh, it, it sums up all the things I screwed up. <laughs> it's on Medium. It's on Medium, yeah. Yeah, I just learned how to spell postmortem as well. So I guess if you just Google postmortem sonar, it looks like that'll be the first hit for everybody. So yeah, a lot, of, a lot of learnings, too many learnings here. But you know, I think in general, partnerships are hard. And if you're in a partnership that's not working, I think the main lesson is you got to either accept it and figure out how to make it work. You have to rejigger the terms or you have to get out of it. But what you can't do is be in a partnership and be unhappy and complain about it and not fix it because you're just dead in the water. Yeah. I mean, it'd be just dying a slow death, it seems like. You got to make a move one way or another just for everyone's benefit, it sounds like. But you'd be surprised. I mean, how many people are in unhappy marriages? <laughs> right. Yeah, no, I totally understood. I mean, that, it makes sense. <laughs> so many people are scared to get out of relationships or you know, like business partnerships. But at some point, you've got to make a decision and realize if you're actually happy. So coming out of Sonar, I guess, were you still in personal debt? And I don't know if you had any money kind of left over from even the first couple of years on that high earning job. Coming out of Sonar, I basically spent most of my money that I had saved up from investment banking. And I, well, <laughs> made my next big mistake, which was my rebound startup. I started, I set my second company, Switch, which is a, basically Tinder for jobs right after Sonar and jumped right into it. And I like to call that my rebound startup because, you know, you have a rebound relationship, which you do for all the wrong reasons, right? Your rebound relationship has nothing to do with the other person. It actually has everything to do with you and proving that you are lovable and desirable, right? And they usually don't turn out well. And I think a rebound startup is the same problem. It's you sort of start up not because you have a great idea or some competitive advantage or key insight, but rather because you want to prove that you are a good entrepreneur. And uh, that's a terrible reason to start a startup. And uh, that's what I did. We got it going. We built it. We launched it. We got customers and started to get traction. And it was time to raise money. And I was not feeling great about the way the founding team is gelling. All good people, but it just wasn't the right collaboration. And I said, you know, I don't really want to bring my friend's money into this thing if I'm not going to be doing it for the long term. And so I had to make the difficult decision to kind of step away from that. And my two co-founders, one was Yang, who's my co-founder at CrimoSpace, and the other is uh, this guy, Jordan Tambor, who's a great guy. He went on to go and raise half a million dollars for that and, and take a really good run at it. So I look at that and I say, you know, okay, I actually learned my lesson, took twice to you really want to just like only do things that you are just like ultra passionate about. And so after Switch, I said, okay, 
I am not going to do anything. I'm not going to start another company. I need to just learn how to be calm. And so I did some consulting, some product consulting. And then I said, you know, I want to like do some angel investing. Unfortunately, I didn't have any money at the time. That's actually how I started Charge Ventures is because I wanted to do angel investing and have any money. So I had to raise money. And I guess that makes me a venture capitalist. So my uh, Fulbright advisor, Thanos, he was living in Greece at the time. He reached out to me and he said, hey, you know, there's a couple multi-billion dollar family offices that were investing off balance sheet. They're looking for someone to come in and structure their investing. I had just come out of a six and a half year relationship and my lease was up. And I said, summer in Greece doesn't sound bad. And so I, I moved to Greece and helped these folks structure their family offices. And what started as a summer project that, you know, here I am eight years later, <laughs> investing out of fund three, turned into a almost decade long career choice here. But that's the origin story of Charge Ventures. So, you know, we put together a little mini fund and proof of concept, invested a million, million and a half bucks in 24 companies, proved access. And then, you know, our investors said, hey, you guys are doing a pretty good job. Let's, you know, really double down here and bring in our friends. And that's actually how we got charged our second fund off the ground. And we raised about $12.5 million for that. Still small, but just getting, you know, building. And then that went well. And so everyone kind of tripled down, doubled down again. And that's how we got to our current fund that we're investing out of now. So funny how things start small and over time, you, you can really uh, make a lot of impact. And with the charge ventures, as far as like when you said you went to Greece, so originally it was Greece money and it's basically been a lot of family offices, you said Greece money ever since? Uh, yeah. I mean, we have investors from all over Europe and you know, and in the US now. I just started with a couple folks in Greece who took a bet on us. Yeah. But that just definitely differentiates, you know, you know I, I would never have thought of that. And I guess, could you explain what a family office is? Yeah. So a family office is when people... If you make a bunch of money, you know, somehow you're an entrepreneur, let's say, and you sell a company and you make up $100 million, you could either give your money to like bankers and investment advisors and have them manage it. Or you can set up a family office, which you build your own like investing capabilities in-house. So you have basically managing your own money, but you might hire a couple of folks to help you do it. And that's what a family office is. It's just the group of people that manage, you know, private wealth. When you said you kind of found out about this or the opportunity to do this after Switch did not work out, how were you able to get this, like kind of land this job, even though, again, I know you kind of get a warm lead from whoever you were working with in Milan, it sounded like earlier, but are you good at just keep contacting people, telling them what you're up to and that you're looking for a new opportunity? Because that's the thing that I think is kind of interesting, how you're able to find all these opportunities. Okay, so a lot of people are confused about how, you know, Adam Newman, right? And I'm not trying to compare myself to Adam Newman, God forbid. Adam Newman, the founder of WeWork. <laughs> yeah, after you said that, then I knew who you were talking about, yeah. You know, he raised $70 million from Andreessen Horowitz, right? So everyone's like, okay, I'm very confused. Why is this guy who just created WeWork and destroyed a bunch of value, how is he able to raise $70 million from the most reputable VCs in the game. And it's like, well, the fact is that there's very few people that can build a WeWork, right? Like build something that has billions of dollars in revenue. And, you know, even though it didn't work out, right? And, you know, he's a weirdo. And obviously there's a bunch of problems with that organization, right? But he did build something that was valuable. Same thing with Groupon, I think. You know, Andrew Mason founded Groupon. He built this one of the fastest creations of value in history, like a $6 billion company in like, I don't know, it was like two years or something. And people were like, oh, Groupon's terrible and it's not useful. And it's like, well, there's so few people that get close to building something that's worth billions of dollars. In the world of possibilities of like, who you're going to invest a couple million dollars with to try to build the next $10 billion company, do you want to take your chances on someone that's literally done nothing of the sort, anything close to that? Or do you want to take your chances on someone that got close, maybe got too close to the sun or built something big and then it didn't work out and then has a chip on their shoulder and wants to go back after it. And so my philosophy has always been, as long as you're doing interesting things and as long as you're building interesting things and making progress and making some sort of an impact, even if it didn't find, you know, it wasn't forever, right? Like Sonar, we touched millions of people's lives. We introduced millions of people in person, in real life. We, we created literally millions of impersonal real world connections. The business model never came and the business fell apart. But people now know that like Brett Martin is someone that can create software that 
will get in the hands of millions of people. And that's a big step of the way toward building a successful business, internet business. And so I think people take a chance on you as long as you just keep pushing and striving and, and doing interesting things. Now, admittedly, starting Charge, it wasn't, I had worked at multiple venture capital funds and I had a background in equity research and investing. So I wouldn't say it was like totally arbitrary either. I'm here with John Austinson. How are you doing today, John? Hey, Austin, doing great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, thank you for supporting the podcast. And I interviewed John on episode 250 of this very podcast. So you can hear more about John's story and how he grew Franbridge Consulting right here. But in the meantime, would you mind reminding our listeners what you do and what you could potentially help them with? Yeah. You know, we work with entrepreneurs and investors across the country, helping them get into business ownership through franchising. And when I say franchising, you likely think fast food. And yet there's so many other industries out there from home and property services to health and wellness from kids, pets, the aging population, oil changes, all of these understandable cash flowing businesses that oftentimes are recession resistant. And 90% of our clients end up purchasing an opportunity they never thought about. We work with the largest brokerage in the country, over 600 different franchise companies. Having been a franchise or a franchisee myself, I'm very picky about which ones that we show to our clients, only the best of the best. The great thing, Austin, is it's entirely free to work with us. We're funded by the companies, very much like an executive search type model, so our clients never pay a nickel. And we do more deals for our clients than anybody else in the country. And what does a typical client look like for you? Two thirds of our clients would be looking to keep their day job. They're looking to get into business ownership, maybe as a side hustle, or maybe they're already a business owner and they can't get their full attention. We work with doctors, lawyers, existing business owners, corporate executives, really a wide array of backgrounds all around the country. As far as anyone who might be interested in your service, is there a best way for them to reach you? Yeah, come out to our website, franbridgeconsulting.com. That's F-R-A-N, bridgeconsulting.com. For all of your listeners, Austin, we'll also send them a copy of our new book, either audio or PDF version, or they can purchase it on Amazon. But I would love to share that. Our book is called Non-Food Franchising. We've gotten great feedback since its release. If you're interested in taking a next step, you know, let my assistant Ashley know, and uh, she'll schedule a call, and we'll discuss your situation and what could be a good fit. Yeah. And I know you've already scheduled a few calls with our listeners. Could you just tell them what that typically is like, like how long and if it's free for them to do? Yeah, we've had a great response from your listeners. Entirely free. Because of the caliber of folks that we work with, we cut to the chase. We usually spend 20 to 30 minutes on that first call. And then as the next step, that following week, we'll come to them with opportunities, usually around 10 or so in their market. They're available to check all the boxes and we talk them through those and then uh, make introductions to the ones that seem most intriguing to them. Well, that sounds awesome. And again, if someone was interested in scheduling a call, where's the best place for them to go ahead and sign up? Yeah, come out to our website, franbridgeconsulting.com, F-R-A-N, bridgeconsulting.com. And uh, we would love to engage. Well, that makes sense to me, but I'm just saying, even the guy that introduced you from when you were in Milan, right? I mean, after you got done with Switch, for example, do you like reach out to people on your network just saying, hey, I'm done with Switch. I'm open to any other opportunities. If you know anything, I'm looking for something like this. Or or did he just happen to randomly email you and say, this is opportunities available? I'm just trying to figure out how you're able to do that. Oh, yeah. Try to stay close touch with your close friends whenever you can. And, you know, I think like when you're in between things, like that's really when you're like really looking forward to your network to support you. And so that's what you did after every opportunity that even if it didn't work out. I'm just curious, like you personally, that's how you did that? Well, I definitely probably spent some time licking my wounds <laughs> between projects. So, but I think like once you come out and reemerge, then yeah, like you got to get yourself out there. I think a lot of people, you know, they feel bad. They don't feel like they have something to offer. And so they like stay behind closed doors and don't reach out to people. And obviously like no one's going to find you if you don't make yourself available. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what I was trying to allude to. And for anyone who's listening now, right, that the guy didn't randomly just reach out to you, I didn't think, right? And obviously, you can you can be upset, obviously, that maybe things didn't work at Switch or Sonar or whatever for weeks, months, whatever. But eventually, you have to get back on the horse and you can't just sit there. You know, people talk about how startups are risky all the time. And, you know, what I tell people is, you know, what's risky is working the same job for a decade, not learning any new skills, and then eventually being replaced or automated and having nothing to add, and then being flat-footed with no skills 10 years later. You know, a startup, as long as you're doing something interesting and you're on the cutting edge and you're learning the next thing, even if it doesn't work out, guess what? There's going to be lots of people that are going to be very interested in hiring you and learning from your you know, expertise and learning from your mistakes. So 
I actually think startups are, in that sense, are less risky than people assume. Yeah. Well, I guess looking back on your story, I don't know if there's any personal things that you've learned from or any other thoughts that you have in closing with this interview. I mean, I think you did a pretty thorough job. It's probably the most uh, thorough life history I've ever done, at least professionally. What I will close with is... I don't know if you've ever seen the the Last Dance documentary on the Michael Jordan and Chicago Bulls, and it's a ten part series. It's amazing. Highly recommend it for anyone who wants to be inspired. It starts with him as a young man, you know, moving to the Bulls franchise, which was terrible at the time, and being interviewed, and him talking about how you know he just wants to bring honor to the city of Chicago and build a great franchise like the the Celtics or the Lakers, and it ends with him victorious winning six titles and they play the same clip over again and and then they interview him and you know he he says it all begins with hope and yeah i just think about that a lot is that it all begins with hope and you got to believe that it's possible to win before you're ever going to win and so for the people out there who are aspiring and entrepreneurs and thinking about it and maybe a little nervous about getting started and don't want to take too much risk i mean you know i just say it, it all begins with hope so believe in yourself and see where that takes you Well, thank you, Brett, for coming on and sharing your story. Again, if anyone wants to check it out, it's Kumo Space, K-U-M-O-S-P-A-C-E.com. They can check that out. And then if someone wants to say thank you for doing the interview, what's the best way for them to reach out and say thank you? Oh, yeah. You can just ping me on Twitter at Brett, B-R-E-T-T-1-2-1-1, or find me on LinkedIn, or if you uh, are starting a company and you're want to get feedback on your deck or looking to raise funding, you can always ping me at brett, B-R-E-T-T at charge.bc and uh, just reference this podcast so I know where you're coming from. Awesome. Thank you again for doing the interview and really appreciate it. And y'all be sure to reach out to Brett on LinkedIn or Twitter. So thanks again for coming on. Thank you, sir. It was a pleasure. But it's bad when you do it to your wife, though, because then you have to crash on the couch. (laughs) See, I have to sleep on the couch every night, too, man. See, we're the same. Was that helpful at all, Gary? Say no. (laughs) Worst experience of my life. One star review. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. I'm used to those. Wish I could leave no stars. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. Oh, no. Thanks, guys. It was a really great experience. I feel like there's a lot to reflect on. So, yeah, thank you. And I can connect you with somebody, too. Okay. I have connections on that, so I can help you get it custom-made, dirt cheap. I'll share that with you. Look at that Patreon membership already paying off. Aw, look at that. Thanks for coming, member. Oh, well, I got to thank my business partner. She signed me up because I've been talking about you. Well, awesome business partner. I'm going to have to use that as a plug to tell people to do the same thing. Yeah, yeah, it's really cool. But anyway, yeah, thanks for uh, setting this up. Get kind of the VIP treatment, I feel like. <laughs> well, I thought it was a lot more intimate than I thought it was going to be. Like anyone who's thinking about doing it, you'll be able to, to get involved, ask a question, you know, which I don't have a lot of experience with other group calls, but I would assume that there's kind of a hierarchy to it. But this one, if you're in there, you're going to get your shot to ask an expert a question. So I tried to compare my group calls. I started joining random entrepreneur groups and just joining their group calls and try to see what they're like. Dude, the one you were on and all of them have kind of gone that way. They're all 10x better than any other group I've been in because become a member to find out. So with Patreon, I heard it many times because you have that many episodes of sign up. So that's always in the back of mind. But then I checked it out a few times and I was like, do I really want to do this? So I'll push it off a little bit. And then you posted your goal achievement of 69 Patreon members. And I was like, you know what, what better time than now? Originally, I was going to go for the lower one, the $9 a month. But one, I want to have the conversation with you. But two, I always find that anytime I cheap out, I always find that I want to return it and upgrade to what I really, really wanted. So that's why I'm paying the higher one, if that makes sense. But it was just constantly pushing it off, pushing it off. And then I was just like, fuck it. I already listened to all of them. So why not?